Epiphany Fellowships podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. appreciates for Pastor Kurt. I mentored us through this process, but uh, I'm so, certainly grateful to God to be here. I'll start off and I'll start with you and then you can finish James chapter 2 verse 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism.
stand. I'm going to uh, offer a prayer, but today's topic is going to be simple. The sin of favoritism in the life of the believer. The sin of favoritism in the life of the believer. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, just another opportunity we have to come before you and dig into your word. Mine out the jewels that you have for us. And thank you, Lord, for your servant James and, and his profound words to us today. Pray, Lord, that, uh, that this word will go out and, uh, and be faithful to your word, not come back void. And that uh, it will land on fruitful soil and bear much fruit. Pray, Lord, uh, you allow me to decrease and you can increase and uh, you can serve your people in all that we do. As we continue in the uh, study of the book of James, beginning with chapter 2 today, this How Your Faith Works series, we see many of the key ideas from chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, are involved. And uh, if we look at chapter 1, that's really about the, the end of it is about the hearing and doing. In the chapter 2, we begin with some specific, uh, spe uh, specific application in the form of the sin of favoritism. The sin of favoritism is, or favoritism itself is a practice of giving unfair or preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. The original Hebrew word for favoritism literally means receive the face, meaning to make judgments, judgment about people based on external appearance, making judgments based on the way we dress, the color of our skin, our physical appearance, that all violate God's standard of impartiality. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 10, 17, 18, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. With this as a picture of God's love and character, it's clear that there's no room for the sin of favoritism in the church. Yet it's, it was present in the early church, and sadly it's still present today. Uh, in 2013, a movie came out called uh, The Butler by Ali Daniels. Um, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry I'm going to ruin it for you, but it came out in 2013, so that's on you. Um, this book was, was, uh, was loosely based on the life of uh, a gentleman named Mr. Eugene Allen. Mr. Allen, a black man born in Buckingham County, Virginia in 1919. He retired after 34 years of distinguished service at the White House and he was a head butler when he did. He served eight presidents. And this movie is a fictional account loosely based on his life. But it also points a picture or gives us a picture of uh, US history from an African-American perspective, starting in the 20s in the segregated South all the way through to the early 2000s. This, uh, this movie, is, or this, this movie is, it shows his powerful history. And it also um, uh, draws a has a great scene in it, I guess, that kind of shows a picture of what uh, the consequences of the sin of, of uh, partiality can bring. Uh, Cecil Gaines, the character that plays him in the movie, he's showing up his first day to work at the White House, and the White House Mayor D is showing him through his task, and he has him in the main dining room, and he's, he's pointing him to the things to do, telling him what to do. He says, when, when lifting the plate, never scrape the bottom. He says, never listen or react to conversation. And finally, he said, the room should feel empty when you're in it. Sadly, Cecil was able to finish that last sentence for him because he had learned through the trauma of his childhood, training as a house servant in rural Georgia, 
that the room should feel empty with him in it. That's why James warns us in this passage today about the sin of favoritism. For the room to feel empty when you're in it, you must empty yourself of dignity. You see, James is what some consider a moral theologian. For him, what we do says far more about our faith than what we say. A heart that practices the sin of favoritism is in grave danger because favoritism empties the dignity of a person made in the image and likeness of God. I have only two points today. The first is the sin of favoritism must be eliminated because favoritism divides us. And second, the sin of favoritism must be eliminated because favoritism deceives us. Let's look at the text. Verse 1 says, my brothers and sisters, don't show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our, in our, Lord, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. James chapter 2, kind of like I alluded to before, is sort of a topic switch. If we look at the book of James, it's actually a letter. Uh, Pastor Vern kind of went over this in an introduction uh, a couple of Sundays ago, but it's a letter to the church, and uh, we can assume it's a letter to the church in Jerusalem uh, because James was actually the leader of that church in Jerusalem. So it was either the church in Jerusalem or some church in Palestine that he was writing to, and it's significant that he was writing to Jewish Christians. Uh, we know uh, James, is the James is the brother of Jesus. Uh, he was trained in a Christian ethic, and he speaks that way. If we read the book, we almost find it almost like a proverb rhythm, right? He gives, he gives wisdom nuggets as he goes through. And so he's, as he writes to this, uh, as he starts this chapter off, he kind of is making a topical shift from the first chapter, but he, uh, he, he provides this application to the end of it. If you look at the end of chapter 1, verses 19 through 26, it's all about hearing and doing the word. He begins this chapter first affirming his relationship with the audience, brothers and sisters. He's connected to them. Again, I said they were most likely Jewish Christians, but with the, some of the verbiage he uses now actually talks to his belief in Jesus Christ because he describes Jesus, and he only uses, he only uses Jesus' name twice in this book, once in the first chapter and once in this setting. And this time, he uses the modifier, the glorious that's something we see in other places in the New Testament where New Testament authors kind of apply, like Peter in 2 Peter 1 and Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews, Paul in Romans 9 and John, John 1. They actually uh, use a, a modifier that was used to describe some of the attributes of God the Father in the Old Testament to Jesus in the New Testament. We go from there directly into the point he's trying to make. He's established his relationship. He's established the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And now, he, and now he basically confronts them directly. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Can you see the scene here? I mean, we're talking about a church in antiquity, but just imagine it was a church today. The doors of the church open up, and uh, the first visitor comes in, and he's blinged out with a gold ring, and I don't know much about I just kind of wear what my wife gives me uh, to put on, so I don't know that stuff, but he's, he's wearing designer gear, right? He's got it on. We can tell he's kind of blinged out. He shows up, and uh, he's ushered in like a VIP. He's erected to the best seat, right? He's treated with respect and, and, and honor. Well, on the side, someone who's homeless, and we've all experienced that if you've been any any uh, uh, train stations, trans transportation centers recently. Uh, we just recently spent some time on the West Coast, and there's actual tent cities. 
in a lot of the cities on the West Coast where the homeless live uh, year round. This gentleman shows up, this, this gentleman lady shows up to the church and they, they're distressed. They've got the smell of living in, on the elements without a, a roof over their head on them. They can't clean properly. They're wearing the same clothes they've worn for weeks. And they're told what? I'll go to the overflow, even though the sanctuary is not full. No one tries to meet their need. It's obviously they may be hungry, but we don't try to do that. We treat them differently just based on the way they look. Not only have they given a choice, not only have they given a choice seat for the for the new person, not only has a new person been given respect and honor, the 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 a wealthy person, the poor person is actually uh, dishonored. And that's not okay. That's sin. This person has the poor person may have no phone, let alone followers. This person is broken every day from the struggle they have to get uh, just to, to, to provide for their everyday needs. And James uses this church example as a micro example of the sin of favoritism or partiality. But we also make micro decisions, decisions in our lives based on these evil thoughts he talks about. The way we choose friends, the way we enter relationships based on status. Uh, high-value men and high-value women. The way we, we uh, and the subtle danger of favoritism is that we can build a toxic community around it, a community that rewards worldly assigned privileges and manipulates our race or gender or financial status. My daughter was even telling me about something they call pretty privilege. So you get privilege just based on the way you look. We even may, some even choose their church based on that. Choosing a church based on the, the uh, socioeconomic connections I can make. These are evil standards, and this shouldn't be. In fact, the irony is when we call ourselves followers of Christ and show favoritism based on wealth, we're trying to make God a liar. And my Bible says God is not a man that he might lie or a son of man that he might change his mind. And the poverty in verse 3 is not just represented economically. For Christ said in the Beatitudes that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, the Lord chose, uh, he chose those in need. He chose to fulfill the needs of those who are in need. And many times without the distraction of things, it's easier to completely lean on God. That's why Jesus was trying to teach the rich young ruler in Mark 10. He, he came to the rich young ruler, you know the story, he came to, to Jesus and, and asked him what the most important commandment was. He knew his word. He knew his commandments. So Jesus, I love, I love the account in Mark because in verse 21 it says, and looking at him, he loved him. So Jesus saw who he was, and he saw what his impediment was. And he said, there's one more thing you can do. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And the, and the rich young ruler walked away in sadness because he loved his things more than he loved the master. Our reward is not what we can get from this life, but the spiritual capital we build up in the next. Many of the members of the church that James was writing to were poor or depressed. That doesn't mean God is against the poor, though. It's just important to keep the right perspective. How do I say that? Well, Leviticus says that do not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. Proverbs 2.22 says, rich and poor have this in common. The Lord makes them all. As I was studying, I came across the story of a woman living on the wrong side of town. And it's a fictional story, but... Uh, she um, uh, didn't have many means, but she's new to this town, and she finds a very prestigious church. So she visits, and she really enjoys the time she had there. And She goes to the pastor afterwards and says, you know, I'd really like to become a member of your church. And he said, well, 
that's great. We kind of take this very seriously. So just think about it for a week and, and come back and talk to me next week. So she thinks about it for a week and she uh, reflects on the experience she had at the church. She says, I really love that church. I can't wait to get back. And she rushes to the pastor the next week and says, hey, I thought about it all week. I want to be a member of this church. And he said, well, like I said, we take this pretty seriously. So um, why don't you read your Bible an hour a day this week and then come back and talk to me next week. And so she did that. She read her Bible and she was even more confirmed that the word of God was telling her not to forsake, right, the assembly of the brethren. And she wanted to be a part of this local body. So she rushes back and talks to the pastor again. He says, well, that's great, but why don't you just pray about it for a week and then come back and see me next week. And next week came and never saw the lady. Six months later, he happened to see her randomly. and He said, oh, how are you doing? I recognize you from church. She said, yeah, I, um, I really appreciate your godly counsel because as I was praying, the second day the Lord spoke to me and he said that, uh, don't worry about not getting into that church. I've been trying to get in there for the last 20 years. When, when we show favoritism, we divide the kingdom and those made in the image of God based on an earthly standard, our evil thoughts, and not the eternal word of God. The Godhead is the perfect example of unity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, yet one God. And as image bearers, we are called to be unified and not divided. But where favoritism divides, Christ unites. Second Corinthians, it, it encourages us with, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. If Christ can reconcile us to God, faith should definitely reconcile us to each other. For, for Christ killed the beef between us and God. In Ephesians 2, it tells us that, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down a dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. Favoritism is sin because it divides. But not only does favoritism divide, it also deceives. The last man picked in the uh, NFL draft each year is traditionally nicknamed Mr. Irrelevant. Now, you've got to get a picture of this. The uh, National Football League has about 1,700 active players. And uh, these are some of the most elite athletes getting paid millions of dollars to be in one of the restricted leagues that's probably ever existed. Uh, the draft each year occurs, and only 256 players are drafted or basically have an invitation to enter this league. Now, they don't increase the size of the league each year. You either take the job of somebody who was there last year or you go on your way. This group doesn't increase. I'm sorry. They, uh, can you imagine being recognized in a group that elite and still being called Mr. Irrelevant? Have you ever been treated like Mr. or Miss Irrelevant, overlooked, disregarded, or ignored? How about having your credibility questioned? You have the degree, you got the rank, you got the certifications and experience, yet your word isn't valued enough to even be considered in a matter. Everyone has a seat at the table but you, and no accommodation is made to let you in. It's like you don't even exist, Mr. Irrelevant. It's ridiculous for a member of such an elite class to be called irrelevant, but when we show favoritism, our faith becomes irrelevant because we deceive ourselves into the false belief that there's some standard of righteousness other than the cross. Look at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? You know, when we prefer anyone based on earthly standards, we are deceiving ourselves. 
The reason the deception is so evil is because it misrepresents God, misrepresents God and it compromises our witness. It violates the central focus of the law to love God and our neighbor. James points out the obvious deception in verse 5 with some probing questions. When he says, first, didn't God choose the poor in the world uh, to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom? He also says, don't the rich oppress you and drag you in the court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? We saw earlier how Jesus became poor for us and had special ministry to the poor. If that's the case, what kind of faith would dishonor a person God honors? Added to that, many of the rich manipulated the poor, carried them into court, essentially kept them in a place of poverty so that they can continue to get more wealthy. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) The royal law comes from a combination of Deuteronomy 6 and uh, Leviticus 19. That's where he's coming from with the royal law. Essentially, the royal law talks about or is, is, uh, is a vertical relationship and a, a horizontal relationship and a vertical relationship. The vertical relationship is represented by do not take revenge or bear. This is Leviticus. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. The vertical relationship is Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the horizontal relationship or relational relationship with your, with your neighbor is don't take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. These two, uh, these two rules are, are perfect because if we apply them, if we love the Lord and we love our neighbor, we got the Ten Commandments covered. Just loving the Lord wipes out the first four because if we love the Lord, we won't put another God above him. If we love the Lord, we'll reject idols. If we love the Lord, we won't use his name in vain, and we'll keep the Sabbath. If we love each other well, we'll honor our parents. We won't murder or commit adultery or bear false witness, steal or covet. James is making it clear that not only is favoritism inappropriate, it's actually sinful. And any unrepentant sin in our lives is like the interference on the channel in your relationship with God. You know, I used to be... um, I used to fly uh, transport planes in the military, and we, uh, we had a um, uh, communication, uh, communication uh, we used radios, we'd have a particular frequency, and sometimes your enemy would, could jam your frequency, right, in the time of war, and uh, jamming could be as simple as just somebody making noise or just interrupting your line of communication with the person you're trying to communicate with. Well, that's what unrepentant sin does in our life. It's like somebody playing something over the frequency here. Anybody of a certain age might remember the rabbit ears on the TV set, right? When you got aluminum foil, you got to set up just right. You got to stand. Come on, somebody knows what I'm talking about. You got to stand out there and and, uh, get in the right position so you get a clear picture. Well, that's what unrepentant center of life does. It interrupts that view. It hazes over the screen. It keeps us from getting all that we can get out of our relationship with God. And to not see favoritism as sin... It makes it unrepentant sin for us. So we need to clear that up. But why do we do it? We know it's wrong. We see it's wrong. But we continue to kind of do the same thing. We continue to show favoritism. We continue to, to, uh, to cave to our, our evil desires or, or our judgments or measurements. I think one of the reasons we do it is because, you know, in those moments, we really don't believe everyone is an image barrier. We really don't value our neighbor. We don't love them like we should. You know, I, um, we got two drivers now, and uh, 
actually two and a half, <laughs> two and a half drivers now. And uh, we kind of have a family tradition where I, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take them to the uh, exam center to take their test. And once you get your permit, you can drive. But my wife is not going to get in the car until I've vetted the driver. So she believes that, yes, he was there. She took the picture. Many of you have seen the post on social media with, hey, they got their permit. She believes it. She says it. But she doesn't act on it. She won't get in the car with him until I say it's okay. <laughs> so, so many times we do that, and that prevents us from embracing this truth, right? We say it, I love my neighbor, but do we really believe it? Uh, when, 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 the, when, the, uh, when the scribe came to Jesus and challenged him as if he knew the law better than the one who wrote the law, the one who was the law, he, uh, he said, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus, when he tells the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, he talks about the, someone who they would think an enemy, someone they would think unclean or untouchable. He described that as a neighbor. It's important for us to see that. So when we fall victim to the sin of favoritism, then I would contend that perhaps we don't believe who our neighbor is, and we don't believe God for what he says. And that's dangerous. Faith in God requires us to humble or lower ourselves so that we can exalt him. God doesn't tolerate anything less than that. In fact, James in chapter 4 says, God opposes the proud or resists the proud. That's such a simple verse. And again, I said James kind of writes under the Jewish tradition, he just kind of writes, it's like a, a proverb, he throws it out. Man, you can easily quote, right? That's an easy post. You can put the hashtag on. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Until we realize who God is. And this word is actually saying he's resisting you. God is coming for you. But if, if you're humble and humility, you will receive his grace. In fact, when we commit the sin of favoritism, not only are we not being humble, we're actually humiliating someone else. Uh, the word humiliation actually and, and humble come from the same source, but essentially humble means to lower yourself, to take the lower position personally. Christ shows us a, shows us a picture of that when he gives, us, gives up his position in the Godhead to die for us, to put on flesh and live among us and humble himself all the way to the humiliating death on the cross. Well, humiliation is what you do to someone else. And Christ never calls us, he calls us to be humble, but he never calls us to humiliate anyone. The soldiers thought they were humiliating Christ when they beat him, but he had, he had humbled himself to the point of death. The priests thought they were humiliating Christ, but he had humbled himself already to the point of death. As we, uh, as, as I bring it to a close, I'm thinking about some of the words we talked about at the beginning. I talked about how uh, James used the word uh, Jesus Christ, and he also used the word glory to modify it. Um, the significance of that word is something because if we look at the, uh, the Hebrew word for glory, it means heavy. It means weighty. When used figuratively, it's God's intense or profound presence, his sheer weight. If we look at examples from the Old Testament, we see how the weight of God descended on the mountain and he left Moses with such glory, he walked away, he, they had to cover his face with a veil. We see the glory of God descend like a cloud to lead them by day. Solomon describes the glory of the Lord in the temple as a cloud in the temple. How does this description of a cloud represent the light of God? Well, I think it's because, or I would contend that it's because 
It, it describes the depth and the mystery of God. As much as you think you know, there's so much more that we can't even comprehend. By contrast, the weightiness of the glory of God and what they saw in examples of the Old Testament, there's some authors today that say that, uh, one in particular said, we as the modern-day Christians many times see God as weightless. We disregard his glory. We're not intimidated. We don't live in fear. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We don't operate that way. We don't see God or appreciate the glory of the Lord. Well, God, James is calling us to reject the sin of favoritism and rediscover the weight of God's glory. He's calling us to reject favoritism and embrace a God that will unify every tribe and every nation. He's calling us to reject the sin of favoritism and receive the saving grace of a God that didn't think his position was worthy uh, didn't think his position was worthy of holding on to and gave himself up completely for us. He wants us to reject favoritism and embrace Jesus as the way, truth, and life. The room should, be never, should never be empty with you in it. Faith that works against favoritism never requires us to empty ourselves because Jesus has already done it. In fact, when he emptied himself, he was elevated and we were filled with the Holy Spirit. Christ humbled himself so that he could be exalted above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every name in heaven, every knee in heaven, on earth and under the earth, would confess that he is God to the glory of the God the Father. The sin of favoritism must be eliminated because it divides us and it deceives us. Let us pray. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. I thank you for this word from the book of James. I thank you, Lord, for uh, uh, driving us closer together uh, to see you clearly, to see you more clearly. I pray, Lord, you would uh, allow us to eliminate any doubt that we have. Uh, we can eliminate um, any example that we have in our lives or any evidence in our lives that we don't believe your word completely, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would just not be hearers of the word, but we would be doers also. I thank you, Lord, for all that you continue to do, and pray, Lord, that you would get glory, and that this word would go out and not come back void. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Yeah, if you would rest on your feet, like they said in the old church, we'll uh, continue in the service with, uh, with communion. If, uh, if, you need, if you need the elements, uh, please raise your hand. We also ask that if you, uh, if you haven't trusted Christ, that you let the elements pass and uh, speak to someone about what that, what that means. We invite you to the Savior. Has anyone been omitted? We got one hand. On the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he uh, sat with his disciples, and as he took the bread, he broke it and he blessed it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat, in remembrance of me. Let's eat together.
And the Bible says, and then he took the cup. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you do it, do this in remembrance of me. Let us drink together. Amen. I think we have uh, some announcements and then a benediction. Amen. Can we give a word of praise for Pastor Mark and the word that went forth this morning? Amen. Just, just as a quick reminder, don't forget this Friday uh, from 6 to 9 is our movie night. Uh, so come on out to that. July 27th will be our uh, prayer and praise night, our worship night. If you're looking for employment, there are a, a, a number of employment opportunities here at the church. So please see us at epiphanyfellowship.org backslash careers. Uh, also, um, Covenant Community, which is our membership classes, are beginning on July 10th. So make sure you register for that epiphanyfellowship.org backslash register and don't forget immediately after this gathering is going to be our servant orientation so if you're looking for how you can get plugged in and where you can serve we would love for you to be able to stay uh, for that time uh, if you're a leader who will be running one of the groups who runs one of the ministries that are here for that please immediately after the benediction could you meet us back in the office area we need you to go back there right away if you're here for the servant orientation they're going to be bringing out some snacks uh, and food and drinks for you guys uh, and so you can enjoy that while you wait for us to get started amen receive the lord's benediction may the lord bless you and keep you may he uh, make his face to shine upon you may he lift up his countenance before you and give you peace now and forevermore. If you agree with that, say amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. Grace and peace. You're dismissed. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder and pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God bless you. Take care. We love you. We love you. We love you.